And that's that idea of no funding, no government funding, no aid to religion has been around since the founding era when in the effort to disestablish where there were religious establishments in the in the colonies and early states, it was really about getting the government out of religion, not taxing people to pay for religious establishments and giving up government's role in directing religious affairs, whether that was in the hiring of ministers or paying for churches. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. This week, we're going to have a conversation with Holly Holman, General Counsel and Associate Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Really excited to have Holly on the program. The BJC is really the leading advocate, the key voice when it comes to articulating what Baptists have argued for four centuries, and that is true religious liberty for all, and that includes a healthy separation of church and state. And so there's a lot going on in that area, and we're going to talk with Holly about several issues ranging from recent presidential actions on school prayer, a Supreme Court case hearing oral arguments this very week, and many other issues over the past few years about church, state, religion, religious liberty. And so I think you'll learn a lot from this conversation, and I really enjoyed having this discussion, and I'm so glad that Holly joined us for the program. So here's my interview with Holly Holman of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. So first of all, Holly, thanks for joining us on the program. Hey, I'm glad to be here, Brian. Nice to be with you. It's good to have you on the program, especially after I got bumped by Nina Totenberg last time I tried to schedule you. But that was a oh no, uh, <laughs> that was a good decision. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, uh, I would bump you for <laughs> Nina if she called me. So Nina, if you're listening, you should probably have Holly on again, not me. But anyways, I would take the call. I promise. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. We have really important stuff to talk about, despite my irreverence to start the conversation. So let's start with, you are the, the general counsel and associate executive director for the BJC. So what does that involve? What does that mean? Well, the BJC is a historic religious liberty organization that stands up for faith, freedom for all, and has done so for eight decades. BJC has always had policy people, and for most of its history, lawyers on staff, so that in the promotion of religious liberty, we are ready to engage in policy debates, things that happen in Congress and in the administrative branches, the executive branch in Washington, as well as at the Supreme Court. So 
in my role as general counsel and associate executive director, I get to help decide what cases, what policy issues we will get involved in in order to defend religious liberty for all people in the historic Baptist tradition. That tradition that says all people should be free, our consciences should be respected, and government should keep a safe distance from the institutions of religion so that religion can flourish on its own merits. Well, very good. And after we had scheduled this interview and kind of thought about things we would talk about, of course, you know, the fire hydrant blew up yesterday and it's just like more news is gushing out. So what happened yesterday? I know, you know, people have probably seen headlines, school, prayer. This is one of those topics that the BJC has been engaged in literally decades. So I wonder if you could help us make sense on your first read of what, what happened. Sure, there's no shortage of religious liberty topics for us to engage in, for us to try to educate the public on and and influence policymakers. And this week we had some uh, an unexpected one. It's the middle of busy time in Washington, uh, you know, impeachment stories happening, but then there was this leak that the president was going to make a major announcement about religious freedom. We heard he was going to do something on faith-based organizations and how they operate. And then he had guidelines on religion in public schools. And that idea that there was going to be new guidance on constitutional prayer in schools really got people's attention. Some people, I'm sure, learned about that after remarks made at a rally that's where President Trump said that you know, there was a need to fight efforts to take prayer away or something like that. And and those kinds of claims you hear every once in a while, sometimes just misrepresentations of law. Sometimes there'll be an incident that someone's talking about. But that got everyone's attention to say, oh my goodness, what what kind of new guidelines are going to come out? Because frankly, from the church-state perspective that, that we serve and have long served, the rules for how to treat religion in the public schools have been set for a long time. For about 25 years, there have been guidelines that represent the basic themes of church-state law, Supreme Court precedent on religion in public schools. And it's largely that, of course, individuals have free speech and free exercise rights that they can exercise during the school day, before and after the school day, but within reason because of the context. You can't disrupt class by starting a big prayer and asking all your students, to, all your friends to join in with you, disrupting the very hard algebra test you're in. That's not protected. But there are plenty of ways that students can express their religion in school. At the same time, it's been very clear since the 1960s that schools cannot sponsor, mandate, write prayers. And that, you know, that's the, that's what prevents teachers from praying with their students or students using the machinery of the school, you know, over the, over the loudspeaker in the morning, the, these things that would involve the government, the public schools are an arm of the government in taking over religious exercises, which of course would be bad for religion, bad for the school, bad for the diverse student populations in public schools. You know, the school should serve the religious liberty interest of all students. So, you know, no government sponsorship, but plenty of opportunities for religious expression and freedom of students. So what were we going to see from the president? We didn't know. And then uh, when it came out, there are guidelines that that largely echo guidelines from the past, back going back to the Clinton era 
There were some other guidelines in the Bush era. And, you know, sometimes these, you know, presidents put their own slight stamp on them. You might lean a little bit more toward concerns for student expression or a little more toward concerns to stop some governmental abuse. But generally, no no big fireworks to come out of the Trump guidelines that we see. Yeah, you, you made the reference to the algebra. And of course, that reminded me of one of my favorite lines by James Dunn, who led the BJC for years about as long as there are math tests, there will be prayer in schools. And so, you know, right. difference between praying and then the state-sponsored or state-forced religion. And I think that's that's the, the line that he was drawing and that you all are continuing to draw today. Exactly. It's really quite puzzling for the president or anyone else to suggest that school administrators stop prayer or that through issuing guidelines, he opened the prayer channels. I mean, that makes no sense to us Baptists and many religious people from traditions where, you know, we're taught to pray without ceasing. You know, we have, <laughs> we can we can pray in ways that could not be stopped by a school. And for those who pray in different ways, we know that there are opportunities before and after school or during free periods that don't disrupt the academic agenda of the school or any other kind of school priorities. While you were dealing with those interruptions this week, you were also preparing for one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and that's a big church-state case that is coming up with oral arguments before the Supreme Court on January 22nd, Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. The BJC has filed a brief in this case, and so I wonder if you could help us, what is this case, and what is the BJC's position? Sure, you're right. The A major church-state case is going to be heard, and it is Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, and as the title suggests, it comes out of the state of Montana. It's a dispute over a state tax credit program that sort of incentivized giving to private schools. So largely seen as a, a, a threat to public schools and a, you know, a, a push toward private education. The private r- schools in Montana that uh, were participating were all, almost exclusively religious schools. But in any event, there the dispute below had to do with the whether or not this program complied with the state constitution. The Department of Revenue held that it did not because the constitution of Montana has a strong no-aid provision. These no-aid provisions are in majority of state constitutions. I believe this type in in maybe 38 uh, state constitutions. And they take a harder line, a more explicit articulation of that principle that says government cannot fund religion, religious institutions, or uh, this is to really get at religious exercise. Religious education has long been seen as an important part of religious exercise. You know, if we think about what's the kind of core of religious exercise, we think about wanting to, how we worship, how we teach our faith, you know, in the, in the tenets of religion. And so, you know, religious education is a, a, a important element of religious practice and state constitutions have said we don't we're not going to fund that and that's that idea of no funding no government funding no aid to religion has been around since the founding era when in the 
effort to disestablish where there were religious establishments in the in the colonies and early states. It was really about getting the government out of religion, not taxing people to pay for religious establishments, and giving up government's role in directing religious affairs, whether that was in the hiring of ministers or paying for churches. So anyway, these no-aid provisions that exist in state law are one of the safeguards for religious liberty and the barriers for those people who really want money to fund their religious schools. So the voucher crowd, those who've been pursuing vouchers for a long time, are frustrated with this no-aid rule. Interestingly, in Montana, they eventually scrapped the whole program. So there's no tax credit program in Montana right now that would fund private religious schools or any private schools. So the claim that religion is being treated in a discriminatory fashion is really hard to square with what's happening in Montana now. So that'll be an interesting part of the case. Okay, sorry, that was a lot of background. Why is the BJC involved in this? Well, the BJC knows that the no-aid principle relates to religious liberty And it's important for us to say that in this case because the petitioners, the group that's representing some parents who want this money, this this benefit to aid their private religious choices, have argued that no aid provisions are inherently anti-religious, specifically that they try to tie them to an era of of anti-Catholic sentiment that was prominent in the late 1800s. So it's really important that people not fall for this idea that that this idea that treating religion differently than other endeavors and that government keeping a fair distance from religious institutions and, and not funding religious practices like the kind of practices you might find in a religious private school. It's important that, that people know that that's not discrimination toward religion, but in fact, an essential element of respecting religion and respecting the autonomy of religious institutions and keeping the government from interfering with the expression of religious ideas and religious practices that may go on in those schools. So our brief really talks about the importance of that independence of religious institutions, the history of the no-aid principle, and then because we partnered with Stephen Green, a, a professor who is one of the nation's leading scholars on state constitutions and no-aid provisions. We really kind of show the history of the no-aid principle and debunk this idea that these constitutional provisions could be dismissed out of some kind of anti-religious animus. Yeah, that's really helpful, I think, for, you know, there'll obviously be a lot of news coming out of this case. And so it's helpful to get that background. And I appreciate the BJC's brief. I did actually read through it. And it, it, the, this no aid clause in the history, I think, is fascinating, you know, particularly the, the, the arguments from some of the other briefs about this anti-Catholic, the claim that these, you know, sometimes they'll call them the Blaine Amendments, as if, you know, one person is responsible for all of these clauses, even though some of them, like in Missouri, predate Blaine himself. They'll still call those a Blaine Amendment, even though, you know, they, they, were, they were around first. You're right. They use this term Blaine Amendment in an effort to smear these provisions. And our brief addresses the fact that it's not even fair to say that the Blaine Amendment was primarily motivated by anti-Catholic bias. So the history is much more complex. It's not to take away from 
the the fact that of course throughout our country and as continuing struggle there have been times when people speak out of religious animus and that was certainly part of what was going on in the country at that time and there are strains of animus but against different religious groups at different times but that's not a core piece of the no aid principle and so our our brief takes that on head on and you're absolutely right it's it is very strange to assume that you could treat all of these no aid provisions in one way when they have different histories and histories that predate that particular historical episode. Well, I want to kind of back up the story a little bit. You've been with the BJC for about 19 years, which means that you have covered a lot of critical cases. Are there a couple of moments that stand out particularly interesting or exciting or surprising to you? You know, I've been really fortunate to get to serve the BJC for so long. And I think what continues to excite me about the work is just the opportunity to to articulate our message, to see people respond to it, to be helpful to the conversations before Congress and the court. So I don't know if I have any particular moments. I I guess one of the early ones where I felt the importance and responsibility of the job was being in the courtroom during the Ten Commandments cases where we had filed briefs against state sponsorship of religion again, against state, in those cases, they were, it was a case out of Kentucky and a case out of Texas that had been consolidated, both that dealt with government picking and choosing religious monuments and and posting them in prominent places, right? And while we were sitting in the courtroom during oral argument, the debate, the, the oral argument at one point turned to, you know, how to decide when there could be religious references, which there are, obviously, there are going to be religious references in imagery, in art, and in history, and posted in some government buildings. But when does it become, and when is it an unconstitutional advancement of religion? When is it government interfering in and picking and choosing among religions and protecting them? And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, in response to one of the advocates, wasn't, that was, that was, argued in the Baptist brief. And I could kind of feel all the people around me look toward me like, hey, she's talking about your brief. And so that was that was really fun. And that doesn't always happen. You know, we steadily provide our voice and we're very careful about what we put before the court. In that case, we were working with Professor Doug Laycock, who is a longtime friend and colleague of the BJC. And he did an excellent job representing our voice and filing these briefs. And it made a lot of sense. And it was good to hear the court recognize that. So that's that's a kind of highlight. And like I said, that doesn't happen all the time. Interestingly, many years later, I got to hear Justice Breyer speak. And actually, I got to introduce him at an event. And, and I mentioned his role in those cases where he kind of we had split decisions where in one case the religious monument stayed, the the Ten Commandments monument on Texas Capitol grounds, and the displays in the Kentucky courthouses had to come down. And only a church state, only people who pay a lot of attention and really care about this, you know, can articulate why that is. But you know, I could see it. It was it was it was Breyer's attention to detail and practical things. Um, that said, in the context of what happened, 
one stayed and one came down. And but that was another highlight is to to get to introduce Justice Breyer and for him later to recognize that we understand these cases and that we have an important role to play. And our amicus briefs get read and, you know, he be recognized that he understands the work we do. Yeah. Well, and I think you were being a little too humble. I mean, your briefs do get cited sometimes in oral arguments, in the cross case, uh, in some of the, sometimes in the decisions, although lately uh, mostly in the, the dissenting opinions, unfortunately, instead of the ma- majority opinions. And that, but that is really unusual that uh, there are so many briefs that are filed and the BJC gets mentioned more frequently than most of these groups. And I just think that says something about the quality of the arguments that you all are presenting. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, we do have a, a good record, strong record of making our, our points and serving a s- important strain of religious liberty law, religious liberty principle. And you know, Brian, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, it's because it's Im- important and long been a part of the Baptist witness, the Baptist history, to stand up for religious liberty, which is protected by separation of church and state, comes out of our particular history. But it's we're not alone. We are. Uh, we do this for all. We know that these principles are good for government and good for religion and all our religious diversity in America. So we yeah, appreciate that we can make a steady, consistent contribution in cases that involve those principles. So how did you get into this work? You know, I grew up um, in Southern Baptist life in Jackson, Mississippi, and my grandfather was a Baptist preacher, and my parents and my family were, you know, typical Southern Baptists. It's funny, I say I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in Jackson, Mississippi, or as we called it at the time, a Baptist church. There wasn't all this talk about what's Southern Baptists or not. And so the idea of religious liberty, especially, you know, individual conscience, individual responsibility, was part of my church training, my understanding, my my baptism story, all of that. So I knew about religious liberty. Of course, I didn't know about the historical role that Baptists played in preserving religious liberty in our constitutional order until much later. But I had the opportunity after college to intern at the BJC. Sure, I learned about that from someone who had done that at my church or my college or something. And I I interned, and it was just one of a couple of post-college jobs where I was just trying to decide if I wanted to go to law school. But it turned out that Brent Walker and Buzz Thomas and James Dunn would have a real effect on me, not only showing me that, yes, I indeed want to go to law school. I wanted the skills that they have to to speak and to write in a way that was persuasive about things that were important. But it, it affected me and my commitment to religious freedom. I went on from that experience to law school and private practice where I did more traditional work defending employers and various employment disputes and did contract work and just basic civil litigation work. And then later, when I moved back to Washington with my family, later the job came open at the BJC, and I had maintained a relationship with Brent Walker, and he got me to come back to this job. So 
it really fit very well with both something that I cared about very strongly and my professional interests as a lawyer, and particularly to be a lawyer in the nation's capital and an organization working on important matters across uh, government, across the government, really. Now, over the past several months, you and others on the BJC team have particularly focused on the issue of Christian nationalism. And I wonder if you could talk about what is that and and why do you see this as a problem in our country right now? Sure. BJC, but in a lot of our friends across a Christian and religious liberty spectrum, helped kick off a project called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. And Longtime friends of BJC will recognize that part of this work is something that BJC has worked on a long time, where we've had to fight this myth that we were somehow founded as a Christian nation, as opposed to this religious liberty nation that we see and that our documents really show us, tell us, you know, the Constitution says that there should be no religious test for office, and then you have the First Amendment, which protects free exercise and prohibits establishment of religion. These primary constitutional clauses are really hard to read as promoting Christian nationalism or that we are a Christian nation, yet that idea persists. Sometimes, I think, sort of out of people who just haven't looked at their history or the kind of well-meaning idea that, you know, we're Christians and and Christians have done well and should do well under our laws. But what we we had seen recently sort of rise in this, or, or it appeared to feel like, seem like, more people talking in Christian nationalism terms. So and that's the this idea that to be a good Christian is to be a good American. To be a good American is to be a good Christian. And so there was really a need to speak out against that. So we worked with people to have this kind of a, a few state stated principles for this project and opened it wide open for anyone to sign on. And it quickly took off to 15,000 signatures from people across the Christian spectrum, people that there's no way they agree on different issues of theology or politics. I mean, just by their denominational brands, you can see that, their denominational labels. But it affirms the kind of country we are and makes people think about who we are as a country and who they are as Christians and to not get the two confused. So we were glad to provide, again, with lots of other people, that forum. And I think it'll continue to be useful as a way to engage in conversation, to try to make sure that there's a this alternate narrative to the Christian nationalism narrative that we sometimes hear in the media. And people can check that out at, at christiansagainstchristiannationalism.org. And Amanda Tyler, our executive director, as we were looking at this issue more, said, you know, let's really dive into this and did a 10-part podcast series that has been very helpful bringing in different voices, talking about this from different angles. You know, I, I quickly went to the history and constitutional angle because that's where I live. But there, there are a lot of other cultural aspects, really theological aspects. You know, so we had Walter Brueggemann talk about the theology and where it's been. We had experts on race and religion and history. So think it's really important and that people stop and think about what kind of country are we are, what role does religion play in the public square, and how it can play a positive role without confusing our 
constitutional order that's been so good for religion as well as for government. Very good. Of course, people can find that at the BJC podcast. Uh, wherever they're listening to this podcast, they can search for it or head over to bjconline.org and find links there as well. It, it's a it's a very good series, and I do recommend it. Thank you. Well, I wanted to kind of end our conversation with going over what what I've called a few of your greatest hits briefs with some key lessons. You know, we could do a full, I'm sure, episode on each one of these cases, and and some of the newer cases do have full podcast episodes at the BJC podcast. But this is basically, this is basically me as as the the Holly fan club wanting to talk about some of your briefs that, that I have read that I thought were really well done. And so I just wanted to give a little nugget because I think each one of them teaches us a little bit of something about church state issues and religious liberty. You've already kind of referenced the Ten Commandment cases, the two of them that came down early in your tenure. But I just wanted to maybe, you know, spend a couple of minutes on each of these and just kind of what what it what happened in the case and what did we learn? And maybe what did the BJC argue that if it wasn't accepted, like, what do you think we should we should be doing differently? Yeah, well, thank you, Brian, and thank you for reading the cases. Our goal, I mean, reading the briefs, you know, our goal is is to, you know, to put forth helpful material before the court to influence the court to stand up for these principles, and we have to select very carefully what we do to to maintain our reputation. And we, we, of course, don't have endless resources, and it takes quite a bit of resources to do this this work. But each one of these cases, whether someone reads the the brief or not, or reads the a good news source on the reporting of the cases, I like to think can be translated into principle that can be understood at the individual community and church level as reflecting positive historic Baptist view toward religious freedom. So, you know, in the Ten Commandments cases, it just, you can't say that the government should be in the, that the government should be in the business of picking and choosing scripture and posting it without acknowledging that that's the government endorsing and advancing religion. And it's not the government's role. You know, we like the Ten Commandments. We don't think the government should be sponsoring the Ten Commandments. Of course, there are times when there'll be references to the Ten Commandments in an educational setting, in an artistic setting, like in the freeze, the, a sculptural depiction in the Supreme Court of lawgivers. You might see a reference to Moses and um, the Ten Commandments, but it's not in a way that, that says, you know, the court is promoting Christianity. So, I think we had the opportunity there to be an honest Christian witness about what was going on and preventing government from, or trying to prevent government from using religion for its own purposes. Do you want to talk about other cases where we've had some influence? Probably the first brief of the BJC that I actually read was the Town of Greece case on city council prayers. One of the things I really thought fascinating as I read that brief over, and it compared to some of the other briefs filed in that case, was what a high view of prayer the BJC's brief offered. And so that you all were really seeing prayer as a significant religious act. And thus, that's why you had a brief against official prayers at city council meetings. So I wonder if you could talk a little about that particular case that, unfortunately, the justices disagreed with you on. Sure. 
the Grease v. Galloway case was a, an, a case about official religious exercises at official government meetings. And while there has long been a, a, a acceptance of prayer and opening the state legislatures and the federal legislature, there's been this idea of sort of a, a, a ceremonial prayer. And it comes out of this case called Marsh v. Chambers. And really, when I'd get asked about religious liberty law and I'm explaining all the different areas of it, it was almost like that was this strange historical exception to the rules. Because, because it's really hard to understand how prayer could be anything other than a religious practice, right? And in our pers- uh, Baptist perspective, that seems really evident, really clear to us. So I never thought that that the rule in Marsh v. Chambers, where the court upheld the legislative practice in the state of Nebraska, and they they compared it to what U.S. Congress does, is a longstanding historical practice that was sort of this benign reference of something greater than government, which, you know, someone people can see and, and want to have a nod to. I didn't see how that would be expanded to local government meetings where you have interactive democracy with the people being represented and the actual officials. So in those other contexts, it's it's the legislators presumably praying for themselves and for the work ahead. So in a way, it's kind of like, you know, a group of people just praying that what they do is, is right, praying for guidance in their work, which of course would not normally be any kind of problem or anything. But when you're using a government form to do that, it raises these constitutional questions. So in Greece v. Galloway, yes, we talked about the importance of prayer, how it's an essential religious practice, how the government does not have a role in doing that. It's not competent to lead citizens in a religious practice. And so we thought Marsh v. Chambers should be, you know, leave it alone, stay where it is, but not be expanded to the situation as in town of Greece where you were having prayer practice in a town council meeting. Basically, you know, you go before the town council to ask for help. It could be on a zoning matter or any kind of local government matter that affects people directly. And before you get your chance to engage with the officials, there's, you know, an minister saying, all rise and leading in a prayer so that you have to sort of go along with it or look like an outsider in your own community before you ask for help. Our brief was cited by Justice Kagan in the dissent. And, you know, so we were glad to have some role and some recognition of what we offered to the court. It was a really tough decision, hard to read almost because of the extreme, in my view, differences in how the majority and the minority saw this practice and its effect on people. And it happened to sort of break down with majority Christians on the court and minority other on the court. Yeah, that's that unfortunate. Of course, a lot of these issues almost seem to come back to, again, what we were talking about a moment ago, this divide between religious liberty and Christian nationalism, where, you know, there's occasionally those might line up together, but then in a lot of these cases, those are, those are alternative visions of what kind of church-state relations would look like, and of course, we've seen a lot of a lot of cases around the country where we're seeing more sectarian prayers at these local meetings because of that decision. So these decisions really do have an impact uh, 
on you know the the local daily lives of people in our country. Yeah, I, I think we should probably talk about the Hobby Lobby case just because that one is is cited so much. It gets a it gets a lot of popular conversation. It's it's used a lot by government officials to talk about to justify other decisions. And so this was a case about religious exemptions and particularly a a business claiming religious exemptions for a, a business practice related to coverage in the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. How, what was the BJC on the Hobby Lobby case? Well, interestingly, and, and, and Brian, you know better that we would definitely have to have a lot more time to fully talk about Hobby Lobby and then Zubik, or otherwise known as Little Sisters of the Poor, and disputes over contraception and national health care system and religious objections to, you know, different different kinds of medical care. Actually, BJC did not file a brief in Hobby Lobby. What we did at that time when we knew this important case was coming, this issue of whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act could be used to override the what's known as the contraceptive mandate, which was part of the Affordable Care Act. It was just something that tried to ensure that women had the same access to preventative health care that men had and others had, which was obviously a big, important part of the Affordable Care Act, whatever you think about it. There was a strong and, to me, common sense emphasis on preventative health care, right, that could save health care costs. But the contraceptive mandate, the the part that said you should cover contraceptive, is you know, foreseeably controversial because some religious groups oppose all contraceptives, some oppose certain kinds of contraceptives. And so there was a process of exemptions that ended up just just exempting churches and integrated auxiliaries, basically institutions that are very closely related to churches. But then government went beyond that, and this was a long process to come to it, but to allow an accommodation for other religious institutions that might have a problem or not want to be involved in contraceptive use and and find an alternative way for their employees to have access to that without, to have access to those services without sort of involving them. Long story. And then RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, was used to, to try to argue that Hobby Lobby shouldn't have to comply with the contraceptive mandate. Basically, if if religious institutions didn't have to, then why should they? If there's a if there's a, a way to get around it, then why not give it to Hobby Lobby? Which eventually is what the court held, but in doing so, left a lot of uh, confusion in the law and a and had a big public reaction or, or did a lot of damage to people's understanding of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and, frankly, their appreciation for that law, which was a law that was supposed to simply provide religious people an argument for accommodation when government acts in a way that infringes upon religion, when it substantially burdens religion without a good reason for doing so. RIFRA gives people an argument. Doesn't mean they'll win, but it gives them an argument. But it really, I think, kind of threw things into a more controversial territory and raised a lot of questions when people said, what? A private, large corporation can use RIFRA to deprive their employees of contraceptives, or at least that's how it was seen. People really were then concerned that employers' religious rights were going to be put above those of their employees, perhaps their customers. And so that's why Hobby Lobby continues to be controversial. 
So we were not involved directly in Hobby Lobby. We were uh, educators on RIFRA and how it can be interpreted and what, what you know, the how courts should interpret RIFRA. We did some work around that. But then we were involved in the next case where Little Sisters of the Poor and other religious entities argued that the accommodation to ensure that they did not have to be involved in contraceptive care, they argued that this accommodation, this ex- exemption, also violated RIFRA. And that's, you know, saying that they didn't want to have anything to do with contraceptive care, even if it was funded by insurance companies, even if they were not involved in the funding or access of that. That case ended by going back down to the courts, and that's still all in the courts. Some of these cases take a lot of years going back and forth. And of course, we should also note that RIFRA, the BJC, was was very important in leading the coalition effort that got that passed in the first place. And so you all have played a a critical role. That was part of your more kind of congressional and executive branch advocacy. I know we're focusing on the Supreme Court side, mostly. That's right. BJC led the large coalition, about 60 organizations that came together to pass RIFRA. It was seen at the time as, as the you know most important religious liberty legislation that had been passed in Congress. And again, widely bipartisan and supported by people across the religious spectrum as providing an important standard for protecting religious freedom. Of course, it gets more controversial when you start applying it in real cases, but I don't think those who supported RIFRA at the outset really, I know they weren't focused on protecting private corporations and talking to them and said, yeah, that's possible, but it's a, a standard about substantial burden and on the other side of the equation, compelling interest. And so, you know, I don't think they, they thought there was a big threat that it would be used against employees by big corporations in a private, private commercial environment. And then the case that hits closest to home for me is the Trinity Lutheran case that you all filed a, a brief in that I, I greatly appreciated. We were writing and covering a lot of that case in Word and Way. In fact, my first issue as editor of Word and Way magazine included an interview with you about this case. And so wow. I'm covering this case a lot. And of course, it's somewhat related to the one we talked about earlier that the Supreme Court's about to hear from Montana with these no aid clauses. Trinity Lutheran will ended up being decided very narrowly and a bit with an odd footnote. And you all were, of course, arguing to defend the no aid clause that you've already talked about in this conversation. But in this case, basically, this the I guess you can talk about any implications from the Trinity Lutheran case. We've kind of talked about the key issue already. Yeah, we were talking about it in, in the Espinoza case coming up next week about no aid preventing, the no aid principle preventing states from funding private religious schools, you know, that would compete with public schools, but that would bring all these other issues to bear, you know, about religious principles, religious practices, you know, that would get the government involved in these things that you normally wouldn't expect. The actual, the no aid provision at issue in Trinity Lutheran dealt with saying no aid to churches. And for church people, we're pretty, we're pretty used to paying our own way. We pay for our, uh, not only all our religious practices, but in Baptist life, we don't really separate what's religious and not religious. I mean, what the, you, you don't really organize yourself as a church if you're not um, religious and promoting your message and having religious practices. And that might include, 
it should include, of course, care for your children. You know, the adults can't sit and worship if the kids don't have a place to go. And playgrounds are part of that. We pay for our own playgrounds. And also, um, the idea that Missouri would not include churches in a state grant program providing money that had that would take care of your physical facilities, you know, sounded sounded normal t- to most church folks, but. In Trinity Lutheran, the the church argued that they were being discriminatorily kept out of a, a secular program, a program, the Missouri program, just to remind everybody, was just about trying to get rid of old tires that were sitting around causing environmental problems. Let's let's recycle them and put them on playgrounds. And the state was wanted to incentivize that. And so they provided some grants to reimburse playground improvements. And yeah, the court the court treated that, I think a simple way to look at it is the court treated that program sort of like a, a general safety program and even made the analogy to, to fire and police safety, which it, to me is, is wild because we knew from the record, I mean, Missouri is not in a playground crisis situation. I don't think any studies have been done to say that it was a dangerous threat to the state that children everywhere were being hurt and let's make sure that our playgrounds are safe, in which case it might make sense not yeah, not to leave churches out. Instead, this was a discretionary program simply pro- providing, you know, protecting public funds for public uses and staying out of the church realm. But the court did find that Trinity Lutheran churches could not be excluded from this program. And, you know, maybe that's as far as the court would go. And it has seemed that way with this footnote you alluded to, where the court said, this case involves express discrimination based on religious identity. So kind of religious status is how they thought, which I understand. Of course, the state should not discriminate on religious status. We're all equal citizens without regard to religion. Actually, that was part of the principle of why we took the stance we did in Greece v. Galloway is you don't want to send the signal that you are more of a citizen if you're of the right religion, right? So the court said that this is just about religious status and there's not going to be discrimination there. The footnote went on to say that we do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. So they said, we're not talking about religious uses. We're not talking about paying for, I interpret that as paying for religious practices, which of course is what churches do, religious practices, right? So I I thought they're saying, okay, they're just going to treat these playgrounds as a safety thing, but that doesn't mean we're going to start making states pay for what churches do, religious worship, buying Bibles, building steeples, you know, teaching about religion. So now you've got that. So that's kind of where they left it in Trinity Lutheran. But we were concerned because there was a tone in in Trinity Lutheran that that sounded like treating religion differently was necessarily harmful, was presumptively suspicious and anti-religious. And that really just really it does not fit our history. It's really disturbing. It really undercuts a lot of religious liberty law. And so we were concerned about that. So now, fast forward, not very long, (laughs) just a couple years, the court decides to take uh, this Espinoza case that deals with funding for religious education, explicitly religious activity. And so the question is whether or not the court will make that distinction as they examine this case or not.
Well, let's let's close up our conversation with the the big case from last year, and that was the what we call the Cross case. I know it has a long name, but uh, about the the Cross now sitting on public land in Maryland. And the BJC, again, I, I, one of the things I, I found interesting and appreciated in your brief, kind of like with the, the Trinity Lutheran brief and the Town of Greece brief, was how, how much emphasis you put on the, the importance of religion, religious practices, religious symbols. And so the key argument for the BJC was that the cross is a Christian symbol, which I know sounds like almost a, a pretty basic idea, but there were actually people arguing that it should stay because it was just a, you know, a generic, you know, symbol of sacrifice of veterans and so forth. And so one of the things you all were really pushing back was that, no, the cross is a Christian symbol. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about that case as well and what happened. Yeah, Brian, I think you, you said it well. I think all we were doing was pointing out the problem that arises when government inserts itself into religion and tries to capture religion for its own purposes. they It inevitably kind of dumbs down religion, reinterprets it for its own purposes in order to appeal to the widest segment. And it really takes the you know, takes the the power out of religion in the way that religion operates in real life and in people's, you know, faith communities and their individual lives. So the the cross case, uh, it's American Legion versus the American Humanist Association. The Humanist Association, some of their members, you know, wanted to bring this case because in their daily commute, they pass by this humongous cross on government land that even though it's tied into history to honor World War One veterans, you, you know, you, you don't see that. It just looks like, hey, there's a big dominant cross in our community. You know, why is that? You know, it's so a, a case brought by atheists or uh, Jewish people or non, you know, non-believers was simply saying, simply questioning whether the government could sponsor the preeminent symbol of Christianity on public land and what message that was that message was sending, and we could see that the government was defending the maintenance of that cross by putting forth an idea that the cross was just a a, a military symbol in this context that it was it was the a, a symbol to recognize war dead. And that's an offensive notion. I think it's offensive to a lot of to not to a lot of Christians, to a lot of military people. To obviously, it doesn't fit with their understanding of Christianity. It doesn't fit with the experiences of people outside of Christianity, as they've been witness to about the cross and what it means. And so, it was important that there was a brief by an organization that is tied to our our Christian faith, our principles, to just say what everyone knows, that the cross comes out of a specific story in the New Testament relating to God in human form who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And there might be a lot of variety in theological explanations and understandings of that, but, you know, the only (laughs) that is the story that's reflected by the cross. It is not about the important but very different kinds of sacrifice that our military men and women make when they serve our country. And we were really glad that the court avoided those arguments and or at least did not did not use that as the reason for upholding the cross, but instead acknowledged 
the importance of the cross and in upholding that display was very clear about it having sort of become this historical landmark and how it was more common in earlier days, particularly in World War One, and that, you know, such a building, uh, such a monument today, you know, probably would not pass constitutional muster. And so it was... Even though, you know, I'm sure by, by remaining on public land, it continues to be a source of confusion about religious liberty. At least the court avoided that argument. And if people read the decision, they could actually learn a lot about the importance lines that should be drawn in church state law. Well, I think if, if people can get anything from cases that we just just very quickly hit, is there's a lot of complexity in the area that you deal with. And we're appreciative that you and the rest of the BJC are there on Capitol Hill that are representing the historic ideas that Baptists have have been talking about, have been preaching, have been fighting for for four centuries, and dealing through all these complex legal arguments. We, we appreciate that you all are there uh, as our advocates and our witness. So thank you so much for all that you've been doing and for your time in the discussion today. Well, thank you, Brian, and and thank you for you know all the good. Baptists and others who continue to take up for religious liberty in their community and do the hard work of, you know, engaging with their neighbors and in their churches to, to try to work through these issues on the, on the practical community and, and church and local government levels. So important. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptists of Out and Adjective. You can learn more about the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty at bjconline.org. And there you can find links to their briefs and other position statements explaining each of these issues that we've talked about, the various cases and the other issues that we've talked about. There's a lot of resources that you can find there on their website. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. Don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this program, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook. Head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the program. It really will help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we'd greatly appreciate it. All you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of the magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you are missing out. You'll find more information from the BJC, as well as many other Baptists across the United States and around the world. All you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the subscribe button and you can fix that problem. If you have any comments or feedback, please send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>